Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. Today, we begin the last message in our series on the book of Revelation. If you can, please open your Bible as John shares one final sermon from the book of Revelation. Let me say it one final time. If you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, this is the 52nd sermon in our study in the book of Revelation. What I thought would be a good idea today would be to take one final Sunday morning and to just kind of wrap up everything that we have learned so far. When I was in college, I took Greek. My second year of, uh, of college, my spring semester, and I did not do very well in Greek. In fact, I was looking through my college transcripts at home this morning before I came out here, and I was reminded of the grade that I made in that class, and it was not really good, I have to be honest with you. But after I graduated college and went to seminary, I ended up taking the same class over again. I took it one summer. They were offering an entire year's worth of Greek in 10 weeks. And so I took the class and I did very well. I learned it. I had been exposed to Greek when I was in college and I learned that there's something about taking a lot of information and compressing it that sometimes is a more effective way to learn. That's why in so many of the colleges and universities now in January, maybe in the summertime, they'll have a class or a, a a semester, they call it an I-term, and what it is, it is one week where you can study world history or American history or some topic that normally would be drug out over the course of 16 weeks. You take that information and you compress it down and you learn it in a shorter amount of time. Now, certainly when you do it that way, you don't get all the details but sometimes you get the big picture of the topic better than you would if you drug it out over the course of a semester. And so today, that is kind of the spirit of this sermon. I want us to take everything that we have looked at for the previous 51 sermons and compress it together and see if we can't learn it. And I want to say in the beginning, you are so kind this morning to give me three hours of your time for us to do this, because not many people would do that to a preacher, but you give me three hours, and I think in three hours we can easily, all the visitors are leaving now. No, I'm just teasing. We're going to do it in 30 minutes, and I hope that it will be a very helpful thing. Now, what I want to accomplish in this sermon, what I hope to accomplish, I want us to get an overview of the book. I want us to look at, there's one verse in here that gives us the outline for the whole book. And then at the very end, I want to make a summary statement of the book of Revelation, and then I want to give us some action steps, some things that we can do in response to this. I think so many times when we're reading our Bible, whether it's Revelation or Isaiah or Genesis or Exodus or Matthew or Mark, we, we are intimidated by the Scriptures because if you're anything like me, I sometimes will approach a passage of Scripture, open my Bible up to a particular place, and I'll just think, this is so much information, and there's no way that I could learn everything in here. And sometimes the devil can get in our minds and cause us to think that we're not smart enough to learn the Bible, or we'll never know everything that we need to know, or somebody's going to know more than we do. Well, listen, there'll always be somebody that'll know more than we do. 
And the truth is, none of us is going to understand everything about the Bible because there are things written in here that are, mis- that are mysteries to us. But the fact is, God gave us this book so that we could read it, so that we could understand it, and so that we could apply it to our life. Now, when we think about the book of Revelation, certainly it is the most... Uh, What's the word? It it is the most complicated book in the Bible. It's the deepest book in the Bible. There are images, there there are metaphors, there are signs and symbols, and we have worked our way through this, and we've tried to to look at most all of that. But today, I want us to step back from all those details, and I want us to get the big picture of the book of Revelation. And I think if we'll do that, when you leave here in a few minutes, you're going to say, you know what? I feel like, I may not know everything, what this represents or what this means, but I feel like I have an understanding of what this book is all about. So I want us to just walk through this today, and we'll look up some verses, and on some of these we won't even look at verses, I'll just describe it. The, The first chapter in the book of Revelation is what I would call a vision of Jesus. Now, a vision of Jesus. Let's just start in Revelation chapter 1 and in verse number 1, and notice how the book starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation means the unveiling of something, and here it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is true that the book of Revelation tells us a great deal about future events, the end times, but keep in mind, the main subject of this book is not the end times. The main subject of this book is Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly or quickly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, that's the apostle John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that has a built-in, written-out promise that we will be blessed if we study this book. Now, anything you read in the Bible is going to be a blessing to you. Now, look in verse number 10. John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's on an island for his, he's, in, he's like in confinement in a prison setting because of his faith and witness for Jesus Christ. And he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voices of a trumpet saying, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so as John is on the island of Patmos, he has this vision of Jesus and Jesus says to him, John, I'm going to tell you some things that are, that are mind-boggling, that are, that are almost above the human mind's ability to comprehend or understand, and yet I'm going to put it in language that you can understand, write it down, and put it in a book. And so John starts to write down what he's seeing. Well, the first thing that John is seeing, and we saw this as we studied chapter 1 two years ago, we see that John has a vision of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, John was one of the 12 disciples. He had been with Jesus on the earth for three years. He knew what Jesus looked like. And yet in this vision, he's seeing Jesus in all of his glory. 
He's seeing Jesus in a way that he had never seen Jesus before. And as John describes what he's seeing in the risen, exalted Christ, he describes that he had hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And John is thinking to himself, I've never seen Jesus like this before in all of his glory. And he writes it down. And so chapter 1 is a vision of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are the seven churches that were located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we've spent the last several weeks studying each of those churches. Jesus had a message to those churches, and he has a message to us today. And in chapter 4 and in verse number 1, we get a description of the rapture of the church. Now, we've talked about this, done a whole sermon on the rapture, but it's been a long time. Go back to chapter number 4 and in verse number 1. John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like the trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And so John sees heaven and he sees a door is open and he's told to come up and he goes up to heaven. And from this point on, John is in heaven and he's telling us what he is seeing happening in heaven and then what he sees happening on the earth from his vantage point in heaven. And so I understand this, as most people do who study the Bible, that this is a picture of the rapture of the church. What do you say? What is the rapture of the church? The rapture is an event that will happen one day, we read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where suddenly, unexpectedly, completely out of the blue, you'll be at work, at home, watching a ball game, asleep, eating, doing something, and all of a sudden, there will be a shout from heaven, and there will be the voice of the archangel, and there will be a trumpet, the trumpet of God will blow, and in that moment, those of us who are saved will be caught up to be with God forever in heaven. That is the rapture. Now, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, when John is taken up to heaven, I understand this to be that in John's taking up, that is emblematic. That is symbolic of all Christians being taken to heaven because from this point until we get to the end of the book, there's no mention of the church on earth. There's not. Because the church at this point is taken to heaven. And so chapter 4, verse 1, is the rapture of the church. It could happen just like that. I wonder if the rapture happened during this sermon today. How many of us would go up and how many would be left in this room? Wouldn't that be a horrible thing to be at church this morning and, and the rapture take place and all of a sudden 85 or 90% of the room completely gone and yet here there would be some perhaps who missed the rapture because they never had been truly saved. Well, John went up to heaven, and one day we will too. In chapters 4 and 5, we read about a worship scene in heaven, and that's the best way that I know to describe this. In fact, if you look in chapter number 5 and in verse number 11, John says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures, now that we've studied, the four living creatures, these are a special category of angels, probably the cherubim that are around the throne of God uh, constantly, and the elders, that is the 24 elders who represent the church, those of us who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and the number of them, that is the number of the angels, now watch this, was 10,000 times 10,000. You do the math on that, that is a hundred million angels. And then it says, and thousands of thousands. 
How many angels are there in heaven? Well, we don't know. We know there are over 100 million because 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And then it says, and thousands of thousands. And we also read in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse number 22 that in heaven there is an innumerable number of angels. And so when we get there, there's no way that we could even count all those. Now, God knows the number, but we would never be able to number the angels. And so in chapters 4 and 5, John, now taken to heaven, is describing what he's seeing. And around the throne of God, he is seeing incredible worship that is taking place. Now, when we come to chapter number 6, and all the way through chapter number 18, chapter 6 through chapter number 18, we read about the period of time that will one day come on this earth known as the Great Tribulation. Christians have been taken to heaven. That, when, the, when the rapture takes place, there are no Christians on the earth. Everybody on the earth is now unsaved. And so for seven years, there will be a time of suffering, the judgment of God. This is when the Antichrist rises up. This is when we read about the mark of the beast. If you're on the earth at this time, you'll have to take the mark of the beast, 666, in order to go to the grocery store. If you want to buy a loaf of bread or some milk, if you want to buy some water to drink, you'll have to have the mark of the beast either on your head or on your hand to be able to buy anything or to be able to sell anything. It's a horrible time. We read that the sun, the moon, the stars are losing their light. Things are falling out of heaven. People are dying. It's horrible. Interestingly enough, during these seven years, many people will get saved. Many other people won't get saved. And so as we think about the Great Tribulation, we wonder, what is the purpose of the Great Tribulation? Why would God allow there to be this seven-year period of time on the earth where people are suffering like this? And I think there are really two purposes for the Great Tribulation. Number one, it is the judgment of God on sin. God is holy. We, We know that God is loving, and we're thankful for that. But God is also holy. And he must judge sin. And the second thing about the tribulation, God is giving those who have never been saved one final chance to receive him as their Lord and Savior. He's giving them a chance to be saved. And so in chapters 6 through 18, we read all about the great tribulation. Interestingly enough, this book is largely about that seven-year period of time. In our study of Revelation, of the 52 sermons that we've done on this book, 18 of them have been on the Great Tribulation. Some of you thought we were in the Great Tribulation when we were doing that for 18 weeks. But I was just trying to walk through it, and we were trying to learn about it, and that's what it was. Now, when we come to chapter 19, things perk up a little bit, and things get a little more exciting. And this, from chapter 19 to the end, has been my favorite part of our study. Now, in chapter 19, there are three things that we read about. Number one, something called the marriage of the Lamb. And the marriage of the Lamb is a celebration that will be taking place in heaven while the great tribulation is going on on earth. Remember, spiritually speaking, those of us who are saved are married to Jesus. We're the bride. He's the groom. And so we're going to be celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Not only that, in chapter 19, we read about the battle of Armageddon and of all the sermons that we've done in Revelation. That was my favorite one. We read about how, in fact, let's just look at that again. In chapter 19, look in verse 11. John's having this vision. He said, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse 
And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he describes Jesus. And he describes what Jesus looked like and what Jesus is wearing. And in verse 14, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And so at the battle of Armageddon, Jesus is coming out of heaven on his white horse. And we're following him on our white horses. You say, where are we going? We're coming back to the earth for Jesus to fight the final battle. And it says in verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And so the battle of Armageddon is in chapter number 19. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, Jesus defeats the Antichrist, who is described in the book of Revelation as the beast, and he also defeats the false prophet, who is the Antichrist, kind of his wingman. He's kind of the, the, the propaganda man for the Antichrist. And the Antichrist and the false prophet are sent to hell. In fact, if you look at the end of verse number 20, it says, These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The first two people who will go to hell will be the Antichrist and the false prophet. As I've said many times, there's nobody in hell right now. If an unbeliever dies, somebody who is unsaved dies, they go to a place called Hades. And at the end of time, people will go to hell. First, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and as we'll see in just a moment, then Satan will go to hell, and then after that, everybody who has rejected Jesus Christ will end up in hell. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Why didn't he say the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Because in the church age, which is the age that we're living in right now, hell is, is there's nobody in hell. Hades is the place where demonic activity is currently uh, headquartered. And so that's where unsaved people are who have died now. And that's even below Hades in a place called Tartarus is a place where many of the fallen angels have been chained in, with chains in an everlasting darkness. And so that is the place where spiritual opposition comes from now, from Hades. So Jesus said, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But chapter 19, the marriage of the Lamb, the battle of Armageddon, and the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet go to hell. Now, when we come to chapter 20 we read about a period of time known as the millennium. You'd think that word millennium means million, but it doesn't. It's a Latin word that means thousand. And it's talking about a thousand-year period of time after the return of Christ. The return of Christ will take place at the Battle of Armageddon. The rapture is not the second coming. In the rapture, we, Jesus doesn't come to the earth. He comes to the air. We meet him in the air. Then we go to heaven. At the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus comes back to the earth. It is his second coming to earth. And in Zechariah chapter 14, we read that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and the Mount will split one way and the other way. And Jesus will go into the city of Jerusalem and he'll set up his kingdom. And in chapter 20, we read that for a thousand years in Jerusalem, Jesus will rule and Jesus will reign uh, on this earth. Somebody says, when will there be peace in the Middle East? When will there be peace in the world? I'll tell you when there'll be peace in the world, when Jesus comes. When the Prince of Peace is on his throne, ruling and reigning, there will be peace in the land. No president, no leader, no law, no treaty, no pact, no covenant, nothing will ever bring lasting peace until Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. And in chapter 20, we read about this thousand years of peace. Now, interestingly enough, one of the reasons 
that these thousand years will be so wonderful, there will be in Jerusalem with Jesus in our new bodies, ruling and reigning with him, and during those thousand years, Satan will be in a bottomless pit. In fact, if you look in verse number 1 of chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And so during the thousand years, Satan is bound, bottomless pit. Jesus is crowned, King of kings, Lord of lords, ruling in Jerusalem. Peace in the land. It is the golden age. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the pit to go out to try to deceive those who were born during the millennium, people who had been saved during the tribulation, had entered into the millennial period, but they had entered into the millennial period in their physical bodies. Whereas those of us who are saved during the millennium will be in our resurrected bodies. We'll have already been to heaven and gotten our new bodies and come back to the earth. We'll get our new bodies at the rapture. And when we come back to the earth, we'll be in our resurrected bodies. So there'll be no procreation taking place on our part. But those who were saved during the tribulation and were still alive at the second coming, they will enter the millennium in their earthly bodies. Many of them will have kids and many of those kids won't be saved, and, so, and then they'll have kids, and they'll have kids. It's a thousand years' worth of generations here. And during the Satan's uh, release from the bottomless pit, he will deceive many of those who were born during the millennium. At the end of those thousand years, God will wipe Satan out and pronounce the final, um, sure enough, the final battle on him and defeat him. And then if you look in verse number 10 of chapter 20, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So in chapter 20, we read about three things. The millennium, and we read about when Satan goes to hell, and we read about the great white throne judgment. And one of the most blessed experiences we had during our study of Revelation was our study of the great white throne judgment. It is a judgment for unsaved people. And they will stand before God one day, and they will be judged based on how they have lived their lives. And the Bible says in this passage that books will be open, which talk about all the things they've done that have never been forgiven. You see, unsaved people and saved people, we've committed many of the same sins. The difference is those of us who are saved, our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been blotted out. Our sins are no longer in those books. But people who are unsaved, their sins are still on the record. Their sins have never been blotted out. And one day, since they refused Christ, they will stand before God, and God will open books, and God will say, you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and it was all unforgiven because you rejected Christ. And so now you must pay the price that he actually paid, but you rejected his payment, and so now your sin is on you. And if you look in verse number 15, it says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Can you, the horror of that, the thought of that, the possibility that a person could, and will, many will, but the possibility of even someone in a setting like this who's hearing this being taught and one day standing before God and their names are not in the Lamb's book of life because they have never been saved. And so we read about all that in chapter 20. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But before we close today's program, I have one question for you. 
Are you 100% sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If you know it is not, or if you are unsure, you can settle that right now. Won't you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. Right now, I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Please make me the person you created me to be. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who have just prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, we would love to know about it and to rejoice with you in your decision. We are so very happy for you. Please share your decision with us by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-337-0157. If you are a new believer in Jesus Christ, we encourage you to get plugged into a strong Bible-believing church in your area and to tell your family and friends about how Jesus has changed your life. We have a booklet titled, How to Be a Happy Christian, that will help you in your new faith journey. You can find it and others under the booklets tab on our website, peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond as we conclude one final sermon from the book of Revelation.